Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is a guest essay by Lindsay Crittenton, author of the newly released book, The Water Will Hold You, A Skeptic Learns to Pray. Lindsay Crittenton lives in San Francisco, where she teaches writing and is at work on a novel and some new short stories. The title of her essay this week is, He Knows My Name, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 30th, 2007. Growing up, I was the only Lindsay I knew. Back in the 60s, there weren't many of us. Not like now, when the name is all over tabloids and college campuses. Twenty years ago, when those latter-day Lindsays and Lindsays were toddlers, their mothers would call to them in the grocery store, and I'd invariably turn around. Until then, I'd never heard my name used for another. It was an odd feeling. I wanted to be Lisa or Julie or Stephanie. I also liked the name Kim. I wanted to fit in. But still, I took a secret pleasure in my name, just as I did in my big ears and my crooked nose and my beanpole height. They may not have been the keys to junior high popularity, but they made me, me. Like my name. The sound of it in another's voice carried familiarity, even intimacy. When I walked in the door after school every afternoon and called out, I'm home, my mother, who was usually in the basement sorting our laundry or the linen napkins, called back, Hi, Linz. That's how I knew I was home. To this day, when someone calls me Linz, I know I've made a friend. Unless I don't much like the person, and then I bristle. How dare they? There is intimacy in naming and in being named. In kindergarten, I had a crush on a boy named Blake. He had a mop of dark brown hair, big brown eyes, and a quiet manner, moody and mysterious, even for a five-year-old. I was moody and quiet, too, so my infatuation probably came from the thrill of finding another of my own species. One night, as my parents discussed possible names for my new sibling, not yet born, I piped up with, Blake. My mom and dad looked at each other, they grinned, and that was it. The fact that I'd named my baby brother doesn't explain everything about our relationship, but it's a good start. From the beginning, I felt he was mine. I was invested in him. Naming carried responsibility as well as intimacy and that responsibility shaped my entire life, in joy and pride, and later as he spiraled into addiction in heartbreak and anger. When he was 26, my brother was shot in the head after stealing a vial of crack. By the time I got to the side of his hospital bed, leaning my forehead into his chest, I needed to say only one word. In the moment when I called him by name, everything that had ever passed between us, 
every instance of companionship, of intimacy, of secrets and betrayals and hurt and the strongest love I've ever known, flooded us both. I felt completely, utterly known, and so did Blake. I can't explain it logically, but I don't need to. A few months after my brother's death, I was driving. I heard on the radio for the first time a recording of Lucinda Williams singing a song called Sweet Old World. I started crying so hard I had to pull over. In the song, the singer asks questions to someone who has committed suicide. Didn't you think anyone loved you? And mentions all those good things in this sweet old world, those things that the dead person no longer feels, the touch of fingertips, a sweet and gentle kiss, and, here's what made me pull over, someone calling your name. Jesus, as the good shepherd, calls to his flock again and again by name. When Mary Magdalene stands alone at the tomb weeping, she mistakes the risen Christ for the gardener, and then he calls her by name. When he says, Mary, she knows who he is. I love John's telling of this story. Mary's bravery in staying after the others leave and especially the intimacy in that moment where Jesus calls her by name. I wasn't thinking about Jesus in the moment when I pulled over on the side of the road that day. I didn't even call myself a Christian back then. But I knew the power of what it meant to be called by name. In the Psalm 91 for this week, it promises protection and deliverance. We read in 91 verse 2, refuge and stronghold, relief from fear. Whatever the scholarship about when this was written, about the reference to the temple, whatever the interpretation of the promise as literal or figurative, as future or past, the message seems clear. God Almighty shall deliver you from the snare of the hunter, you shall find refuge under his wings. You shall not be afraid. These are the kinds of promises that stymied me when I returned to the church as an adult. I'd been an English major. I'd been to grad school. I was well practiced in analyzing every word, in parsing every phrase. The promises like those made in Psalm 91 felt lofty and unrealistic. Who are you to say I won't be afraid? I am afraid. I had a rebuttal for every line. I read the words and they felt distant, even impersonal. The skeptic in me wondered why. The verses offered a lot of assurances but not much explanation, and I wasn't ready to trust in assurances that I couldn't prove. And then I turned the page and read Psalm 91, verse 14. Because he is bound to me in love, therefore will I deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The first six verses suddenly snapped into focus. 
I could hear the words of solace and promise in a way that I hadn't been able to before. Because he knows my name, open my ears, just as Jesus' breath opens the ear of the deaf man. The importance of naming falls throughout the scriptures, girding our faith. Adam names the animals. The Israelites in the desert name places for the events that mark their journey. Yet naming is the first step, an important one, but not the whole story. Naming grants intimacy. Okay, but then what? My tears at Lucinda Williams's aching song had to do in part with how angry I was. I named you. I loved you. How could you go and get yourself killed? Mary doesn't just recognize the risen Christ when he speaks her name. She goes back and tells the other disciples she stands up to their doubts. Think, too, of the Annunciation. The German poet Rainer Maria Rilke has a poem from his book Das Marienleben, in which the angel Gabriel approaches the teenage Mary with his strange message. In the poem, Rilke focuses on the moment before the angel speaks, the moment of meeting. Listen to his lines. He looked, and she looked up at him. Their looks so merged in one. Just she and he. See, this arouses fear. That intimacy, that moment of spiritual revelation and of awe, of fear, seems a kind of naming. Both the angel and the girl feel it. The moment is so charged, so electric, that sparks might as well be flying. And we feel it, too, in witnessing through the poem and through the gospel. But then what? Gabriel sings out what he's come to tell her, and she accepts it. Not without a few questions, but still. They plunge forward. How might we do the same? Before my brother came along, I had longed for a playmate, a cohort, a confidant. Kindergarten crush Blake seemed like me, moody and quiet, mysterious. But my little brother Blake belonged to me. We were nothing alike in terms of personality. I was the bookish and responsible one. He was the popular and charming rebel. But that didn't matter. Once I named him, there was no going back. In heartbreak and all, I wouldn't have it any other way. Each one of us is an only child, waiting to be called into intimacy by the shepherd who knows our name. That intimacy isn't easy or painless. But what a gift to hear our name in the myriad ways God calls us and then to plunge ahead. Amen. A guest essay by author Lindsay Crittenton. He knows my name. For books this week, I review Helen Epstein, The Invisible Cure, Africa, the West, and the Fight Against AIDS, 
New York, Farrer, Strauss, and Giraud, 2007, 326 pages. As a woman living with HIV, says Beatrice Ware of Uganda, I'm often asked where there will ever be a cure for HIV AIDS. And my answer is that there already is a cure. It lies in the strength of women, families, and communities who support and empower each other to break the silence around AIDS and take control of their lives. With a vaccine against HIV far off in the distant future, if at all, and with treatment of AIDS in the two-thirds world difficult, expensive, and limited in effect, the name of the game in HIV-AIDS is prevention. But in places like Africa, which is the focus of Helen Epstein's book, prevention is not as simple as it sounds. As she notes in her appendix, measles, syphilis, tuberculosis, and other entirely preventable diseases still kill millions of people even though they can be treated for pennies. So why has HIV-AIDS ravaged Eastern and Southern Africa like no place on Earth? In 2005, she writes, roughly 40% of all those infected with HIV lived in just 11 countries in this region, home to less than 3% of the world's population. In some of these countries, the infection rates have hit 30%, decimating the general population, while in the West, by contrast, rates hover at about 1% and are generally limited to specific demographics like gay men, IV drug users, and commercial sex workers. Theories about this discrepancy abound, but Epstein argues a very narrow point that Africa's problem is not profound promiscuity or even the normal culprits of high-risk groups like prostitutes or truck drivers, but instead a social phenomenon of what she calls quote-unquote concurrent partners. In other words, Africans don't have more sexual partners than in other places in the world, and they certainly don't have anywhere near as many partners as gay men, among whom infection rates are exponentially lower. But Africans do have a small number of sexual partners concurrently, at the same time, rather than one at a time or sequentially. And this, says Epstein, has set the virus loose among the general population like a runaway train. And why has prevention been so elusive? Epstein appeals to what she calls the comprehensive social ecology of denial, silence, shame, adverse gender roles, and stigma about HIV-AIDS. Western-initiated and donor-funded programs will always be less successful than listening to Africans themselves and their own suggestions about how to address the problem. Uganda, of course, has been the amazing success story in this regard, and the subject of bitter debates about why. In 1989, Uganda had one of the highest infection rates in the world, 
but from about 1992 to 2002, the infection rate dropped by two-thirds. The key to the success, argues Epstein, was not in the billions of dollars from the West, but from the collective efficacy of a shared calamity. By Africans helping each other in talking openly about the scourge. In particular, partner reduction and not the much-vaunted condom use helped Ugandans to address the cultural phenomenon of concurrent partners. Partner reduction, as one worker described it, is thus the neglected middle ground of the ABC approach of abstinence, fidelity, and condoms. Zero grazing, as Uganda's president Yoweri Museveni called for, is thus the silent cure already available, however valuable other prescriptions are. Epstein, a molecular biologist who has written widely on public health issues, combines rigorous science and the anecdotal evidence of substantial field research. She's clearly as comfortable with and interested in meeting with a dozen African widows under a mango tree as she is in the latest results of a demographic study. Her book has received strong reviews in the New York Times and the New York Review of Books, where I might add her mother was a co-editor before she died. The book has also received a rebuttal of sorts on the homepage of UNAIDS, which was provoked by her somewhat conspiratorial stance toward research that she argues the UN AIDS ignored because it didn't fit their partisan ideology. Helen Epstein, The Invisible Cure, Africa, the West, and the Fight Against AIDS. For film this week, I review a newly released film called Deep Water. In 1968, the Sunday Times of London sponsored a race to see who could circumnavigate the globe, only with two qualifiers, solo, all by yourself, and without stopping. Prizes were offered for the one who finished first and the one who finished fastest. Nine sailors entered the race, but this documentary film focuses on three contestants in particular. First, Robin Knox Johnston, who finished first by averaging 92 miles a day for 312 days, across almost 29,000 miles. Second, the Frenchman Bernard Motessier, who turned around just before finishing forsaking fame and fortune for the isolation of the sea, and sailed an additional 10,000 miles to Tahiti. His story is told in his own book, The Long Way. And then thirdly, the amateur sailor and eccentric Donald Crowhurst of Britain, who never should have entered the race under any circumstances. His bizarre story forms the real narrative of this film. It's difficult to say more without spoiling the film, but you can be sure that it's more of an exploration of the deep waters of the human psyche than an adventure tale. Interviews with family members and friends, archival film footage, newsreels, 
diaries, audio tapes, 16 millimeter film, and ship logs by the sailors, and still photographs lend authenticity to the pathos of this deeply human story. On an incidental note, two of the film's producers were John Smithson and Paul Trejbitz, who made the adventure film Touching the Void. Deep Water from the year 2006. And finally, we've posted a poem called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. Jane Kenyon lived from 1947 to 1995. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. The poem Otherwise by Jane Kenyon. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 30th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.